Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Trishant Nalakara. Uh, I am a, a associate professor reader in UK uh, in the Dyson School of Design Engineering, Imperial College London. Um, I'm interested in soft robotics. In particular, I'm interested in using soft robots to understand the physical mechanisms used by biological species to perform real-time computation to survive in real environments with deadlines on computation. Thank you for joining us, Professor. So I would like to go when you were a child. Do you have any memories where you were interested in science or technology? Do you have any memories about that? Yeah, um, I, I, I was really interested in uh, making things mm-hmm. and then observing. I was a good observer. Uh, I think my um, one of my childhood uh, fantasies in Sri Lanka was to touch this uh, as, uh, the the sleeping plant, a sensitive plant, which is like so when you touch it, it can collapse its leaves. Uh, it was really fascinating. I was asking questions about it, like you know, how does it know that I touched it, and how did it know how to collapse uh, its leaves, uh, you know, without a brain? So all these questions were kind of lingering in my mind. Um, so that is a biological question I had. And then I was super interested in making uh, stuff like, um, you know, in Sri Lanka, it is sunny. Uh, and then we used a lens to heat a, a container of water in a boat, in a tiny boat, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that this hot water uh, gave a propulsion force. And then it is like a autonomous boat powered by solar, right? So it's a lens heating up water. So I was not thinking of uh, robots, but like that kind of things were really working in the background when I worked on robots later on. That's interesting. Yeah. So backing to where were you an undergrad student? Do you remember what is the first robot you build, either masters or undergrad? Yeah. So um, I think uh, I, I have made uh, several robots um, in my life. Um, so I think one of the f- most fascinating experience was um, I uh, like I was in Sri Lanka and then there was a civil war and then after the civil war there were a lot of landmines mm-hmm. and then we thought of doing something to uh, at least to clear these landmines using a robotics approach and um, there were resource limitations um, and then we thought of making a robot out of recycled parts, like, you know, bicycle spare parts and auto, automobile spare parts um, and motors from wipers, right? You know, car wiper motors. Uh, and then we made a robot that was inspired by a iguana, right? So a reptile that lives in, in these minefields. The iguana can walk on these minefields without triggering them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the robot behaves like an iguana, goes through uh, grass and uh, trees and it was fascinating for us like so and then it gave us a lot of kind of lessons about why compliance is important uh, and then how to uh, how to simplify biological phenomena that can be implemented in a uh, you know mechanical system partly we were constrained by the things we could buy right so that that, that really imposed constraints on the design but it was a real good experience in robot design with kind of um, you know sustainable. <laughs> we ne- we never thought that that would have been maybe the world's first um, recycled robot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is a good experience. That's interesting. So if I ask you, what is the most simple, a beautiful, profound equation that inspires you, where you have this experience? Yeah, when I was a when I was a student, I mean, there were so many several equations. Out of them, um, 
I was fascinated by Maxwell's third equation of electromagnetic induction. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason is, uh, one, in one way, it, it says, um, okay, electrical field and the magnetic field are related. Like, so it is, you, you, you think like, you know, you put labels like, okay, electric field and magnetic field, but they are not independent, right? So they interact with each other. Um, and then so many scientists like Lenz, Faraday, they, they're so different aspects of the same phenomenon. Uh, so that was a time where a lot of scientists um, converged on one phenomenon of electromagnetism. Uh, uh, so I was really fascinated by how these two things are related, right? So you know, give a simple example, there's a loop, like a, like a ring, a conductor, and then you have a magnetic field changing uh, inside that ring. And then there's an electromotive force induced on that ring. And then that leads to a current, which is the Lenz law. Mm-hmm. And then the Faraday said it in the same, in a different way. And then Maxwell said it in a different way, more like a more generalized way. Um, so I was really fascinated by uh, this rate of change of things when things start to change, things get related. That, that's, a, that's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, uh, I mean, this, this, is, this phenomenon is true in Bernoulli equation also, right? So when, uh, what happens to the speed of a column of liquid uh, when, it cha- when the potential energy of the liquid changes? Uh, so those things are really interesting to me. To me. Cool. So, I'm curious to ask you how, how you would define soft robotics from your expertise and what do you think the most important question we have to consider while working in soft robotics domain? Yeah, so soft, uh, soft robotics, the softness is really, uh, it, it is relative to the magnitude of the forces and their frequencies experienced by the robot. Uh, so, for example, in an earthquake, uh, a building can behave like a soft thing, right? So because it starts to vibrate and then some buildings collapse and some some buildings survive, uh, depending on um, the way it it responds to the earthquake, right? Uh, so, but in general, uh, what we mean by soft in a soft robot is in the in the in the domain of forces and frequencies experienced by humans. It is more like a human-centric definition of softness. Uh, so, if if a robot uh, moves around um, in the same range of velocities humans move around our limbs, and then uh, the forces, contact forces, are not so harmful to a human, then we then we tend to define it as a soft robot. So, it is all human-centric um, uh, thing. Uh, and then, like these, these soft robots can be uh, application areas can be numerous. Like it can be wearables, uh, it can be a co a cobot, like a coworker. Uh, it can be a surgical robot that doesn't damage the tissue. It can go like so. I, in other other way of seeing soft robots is is to see biological inspirations of softness, like octopus, octopus um, tentacles, chameleon tongue, uh, elephant trunk. I mean, elephant trunk is a good example where uh, it, 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 it can be seen as soft, but it can exert huge forces. So uh, that is kind of an outliers of robot. Um, yeah. What is an area or direction of research you think, from your perspective, is very interesting and promising, but the community, the soft robotic community, seems to do disagree or doesn't doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Right. So I think um, uh, so. For me, uh, I use soft robots uh, as a as a kind of a a replica of a biological counterpart so that I can ask questions about biology mm-hmm. that, um, you know, where uh, it is very difficult to do the experiment on the biological counterpart directly, right? Uh, 
to give an example, um, I use uh, soft robotics to understand how a mountain goat would survive on a cliff. And then I make uh, various questions about whether, you know, computing happens in the hoof or not. And it's extremely difficult to use the original mountain goat to do experiments, more controlled experiments. It is easier to make a soft robotic mountain goat hoof and then do laboratory experiments to understand so many phenomena. Um, and then likewise, like if you want to, uh, uh, you know, learn about how uh, musculoskeletal systems like the knee joint uh, solves problems, uh, you know, rather than putting a lot of electrodes uh, in the knee joint, it is much better to use a soft robotic counterpart of the knee joint. You can 3D print this, uh, you know, the, the skeletal part and then have the muscles made out of a soft, ro soft robotic um, uh, solutions. Uh, you can put sensors in, you can do lots of various difficult uh, experiments with the soft robotic counterpart. So um, I think this is a opportunity that is not usually explored in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to promote. So that is, uh, uh, you know, rather than uh, uh, using soft robot or thinking as soft robots as uh, direct applications or, you know, replacement of a rigid robot, use the soft robotic uh, opportunities, the potential to ask questions about biology and evolution itself. Mm -hmm. Great. So if I ask you, what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics? So maybe something concerning uh, you have witnessed also about uh, soft robotics. I think, I think uh, the biggest misconception in soft robotics is the softness itself is, is a solution to safety. Right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, people tend to sell this as a, oh, soft robots are safe because they are soft. I think that is a misconception. Um, I would say a whip is more dangerous than a stick of the same mass. Uh, so you can you can hit somebody with a stick, and it will be less damaging uh, compared to what a whip can do uh, with the same velocity. Right? Um, uh, so a soft toy can suffocate a, chill, a child than a rigid toy, right? And and soft robots can get stuck among organs easier than a, a rigid robot in a surgical application. Oh, the soft robot can wave around, uh, you know, dangerous tools in unwanted vibrations. So just because it is soft doesn't mean that it is safe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it it, it 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 is much more than that. Uh, so it 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 involves the soft robotics and control, and then how the dynamics, everything should be considered together. Uh, so without that. Um, I think there is this common misconception that just being soft, it is safe. Thank you for this point. I think this point is also very important. And I'm curious to ask you, uh, why do you think this uh, kind of overselling or maybe uh, this illusion about uh, the real uh, real opportunities behind robotic is safety? Why do you think? Why do you think this? Uh, uh, overselled or it is it is uh, it is a it is an oversell uh, without validation. I think it has to be really validated. So the problem with any robot is that when we when they move around in free space, they are fine. They all look good. Uh, but when it comes to contact uh, or you know do force control, uh, ask a robot to do a real surgery, or uh, you know ask. Uh, I mean, you can move around uh, the surgical robot in free space. Uh, that's fine, but just just ask it to, you know, cut a tissue, uh, and then you see begin to see the problems, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so all these bounces, vibrations, and then uh, uh, errors in tracking and the slowness, like you know, uh, they cannot do the surgery as fast as a human would do. Uh, all these problems come into being when you do real hardware experiments. Uh, and interaction experiments. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, these misconceptions can be avoided 
if we have a set of benchmark tests to validate a soft robot. So that is something I would say a little missing in the soft robotics community. We don't, let's say if, I, if somebody wants to uh, develop a, a hand, a grasping hand, we need a set of benchmark tests to validate that. A surgical robot, okay, so do these 10 tests uh, and show me your performance. We, we need different sets of uh, benchmark tests for these important domains of applications. Uh, that is one of the one of the things we are trying to do um, in the UK RAS Robotics, uh, Soft Robotics Strategic Task Group. Uh, I'm part of that. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great point. So if you can tell us more about your research uh, focus right now, Soft Robotics to our audience. So, um, uh, as I said, I, I'm using Soft Robots to test biological phenomena. Uh, so I'm leading a consortium uh, called Robo Patient uh, Project, uh, which is funded by the UK uh, EPSRC, Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. Uh, so uh, I'm at Imperial and then my colleagues are uh, Fumia Ida in Cambridge and then Simon Lusignan in Oxford Radcliffe Hospital. So the idea is we have a soft robotic patient um, that can present various uh, physiological conditions by changing the internal organs in different ways. For example, it can produce uh, swollen uh, intestine or uh, it can produce a um, tumor in the liver, uh, swollen liver, or fibrosis conditions. So it can, it can camouflage itself to different um, illness conditions. And then we get people to examine that robotic patient, like palpate it. Um, and then we want to understand how people condition their fingers, uh, uh, you know, and regulate their forces uh, and behaviors, movements, uh, to physically examine this robotic patient. Um, and then the robotic patient gives facial expressions of pain while doing so. Uh, so, so we have a very expressive emotional face that gives pain. For example, if you touch right on top of a tumor or a fibrosis, which is painful, and then press hard, uh, the the face will give a, a very you know painful expression. And then we are trying to uh, use that to present various ethnic conditions and gender uh, kind of so male female. So the robot can go from a male to a female. Uh, or it can go from a black person to a white person or an Asian person, South Asian. So that's that's the goal. Uh, so the robot is receiving forces, not giving forces. So that is that fits well with the soft robotics, uh, uh, you know, domain. Uh, so the primary goal is to understand how the brain conditions our behaviors. Uh, when it wants to gain information, like, you know, haptic information. Uh, so, uh, like, it's a beginner would press hard, but that, then it'll immediately get the pain feedback from the face, right? And then, then it'll be forced to reduce the level of forces, but to use other strategies like, you know, soften the fingers or change the frequency of movements uh, or, um, you know, ch change um, the velocity profiles of movement. So we want to understand how the brain uh, changes these strategies when there are constraints imposed on, on their behaviors, like the pain expression from the robotic patient. Mm -hmm. So it is more, we call it a constrained haptic information gain process. And then we can use this soft robotic patient to understand how the brain, um, you know, switches from one behavior to another, and then how the brain conditions our body when we want to feel something. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting uh, for for definition of the pain. How how you can relate the pain in human being with the pain expressed in a robot? Because as a human being, when you have a pain, you can't feel. No one can feel each other pain. I mean, in in physical or psychological level, but you can't have the same feeling. So how you can make sure you represent the actual pain? Yeah, so that that's the challenge. Uh, so uh, we are taking 
we, we have psychologists and we have uh, medics and engineers in the team uh, looking at it from different angles. Uh, and then we want to give it as a, a useful tool for medical education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you from your experience, what is the biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics? Do you think it is, it is fabrication or sensing? If you can tell us from your eyes, what is the biggest technological roadblocks? I think um, that the, the, the that, um, block would be, you know, being able to predict the behavior of these soft robots. Mm -hmm. So in a rigid robot, it is very easy to do the kinematics and uh, derive the dynamics. It's, it's very easy to predict its behavior. For soft robots, um, uh, how to predict how it will behave in a in a very unstructured environment is is a is a challenge. And if we are careful, we can we can use that as an opportunity to, right? I think all these problems come from our lack of understanding about the the basic notion of computation what a model is mm -hmm. and then how to control these things. So that, that is one. I think um, you know, if you solve that, we can, we can solve a lot of things. Um, yes, there are other challenges like the force range it can, it can exert on something. And then, uh, I mean, I was involved in a soft robotic uh, project of a surgical robot. Um, so the biggest limitation we saw was like this, this soft robot has huge limitations in force. Uh, like that is, that is not really useful for a real surgical application. In surgery, you have to be able to cut tissue, or pull tissue and all these things. So just, just being able to reach a tissue doesn't mean that it is useful. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the other limitation is the stiffness range, right? So like uh, biological limbs can be controlled uh, from a very kind of squishy, very soft limb to a very rigid uh, uh, limb that can, you know, with our hand, we can touch feather and then we can also, some people break um, wood and ice and concrete, right? Mm -hmm. The martial artists, for example. Yeah. So we can, we can accomplish that full spectrum that, the soft robots, we don't know how to do that. Yeah. And then the other thing would be durability. Right? So whenever we, we make a soft robot, it decays, like all these silicon rubber material or hydrogels, uh, they don't last long. Uh, but rigid robots, you can give a guarantee, okay, five years or 10 years. Mm -hmm. So those those are some technological roadblocks. Yeah. Uh, I can, I can uh, you know, that come to my mind. Yeah, yeah, that's a really excellent point, and I, I would like to go back for the first point later for the design and modeling understanding. But back into your last point about durability, and since you highlight the hydrogel, for example, it doesn't last too much time, and sometimes hinder the uh, mechanical performance of some materials. But do you think in that case we have to go for designing smart material? For example, we have smart material recently, but still have limitation in terms of the force and response time, like conjugated polymer, etc. Do you think when we work with a smart material, we understand the physics behind this material and how to use them? Uh, yes, I think we really don't understand. Uh, I mean, what it means to be smart, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's say we have. Uh, uh, smart materials like shape memory alloys, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, shape memory uh, polymers, uh, the electroactive polymers. All all these things are good, um, but there are limitations, right? So, for example, in the polymer domain, we have we need huge voltages to do something useful, um, and then in the, uh, uh, the shape memory alloy domain. Um, it wastes a lot of thermal energy, right? So it is not very energy efficient. And then the cooling time mm -hmm. uh, is a problem. Yeah. Uh, so mm, I think there's huge potential for smart materials. Like it, it should be, I think approach would be uh, a, a more type of alloy, like, you know, how to, how to combine the properties of polymers uh, and let's say nitinol and uh, all this 
memory uh, alloys, right? So the memory, I think, is going to play a real big role. And then the challenge would be to increase the real-time responses uh, and then less hysteresis uh, and then being able to switch back and forth between two states quickly. So those are the things um, open yeah. in, the, in the future. Open yeah. in, the, in the future. That's a good point. So back into the modeling and control for soft robotic, because that's something that's very important, especially when it comes to modeling. So maybe we can discuss this later, the modeling. But since you were in soft robotics debate, uh, we have requested from Orient that to elaborate your point. But before that, the question we had in the debate, we say that for reliable soft robotics, should we focus on morphological computation and how controller, traditional control, can get the dusk done without destroying the natural dynamic of soft robotics. So that's always the main question, and you were uh, the side of morphological computation. If you can tell us from the beginning, what is morphological computation for the first time, if anyone is listening, and why do you think we have to focus more in understanding the morphology so that we can enhance and get inside what could be the morphological parameter can enhance the control uh, design? Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, so I, I, I view uh, morphological computation as a, a phenomenon where computation on one hand and then the physical dynamics on the other hand come in together to be one single phenomenon, right? So uh, when I say computation, um, it is a process it's a process of mapping from one, dom- one domain to the same domain or one domain to another domain, right? Uh, as I said in the in the debate, it is let's say uh, you have a continuous time signal and then you map it to a discrete time signal, which is it is same domain, a time domain, but it is a map from continuous to discrete. And then if you have a continuous time uh, signal map to its frequency components, then there's a domain shift from time to frequency. So that is computation, right? And then physical dynamics, uh, forces and accelerations and vibrations. So let's say take the human cochlea, the hearing, for example. Uh, so the pressure waves are continuous time signals. Uh, and then they propagate through this structure, mechanical, pure mechanical structure from the eardrum uh, to the cochlea, which is a tapered tube. Um, wound around like a spiral. And then when these pressure waves hit this cochlear tube, uh, which is tapered, due to the tapered nature of this liquid, it it separates the frequency components uh, from one end to another, right? So in the human ear, it is from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz separation. And then we know exactly where each frequency component is going to be uh, given the physical dynamics vibration dynamics in the cochlea. And then the cochlea here pick up these frequency components from these specific places and inform the auditory cortex what these frequency components are. So it is computing, uh, the cochlear tube is solving a computational problem of mapping time domain signals to frequency domain signals, and uh, which is done using vibration dynamics in a tapered tube, right? Which is physical dynamics. So then physical dynamics and the shape of the cochlear tube uh, and this mapping of computing of mapping coming together is morphological computation. And it solves a very important problem of real-time hearing. So if, if the brain circuit, very slow brain circuits were asked to do that, it would have been slow and then you hear something that was not really there, it was in the past. Um, this is not just limited to the cochlea, it is it is everywhere in the body. Uh, so for example, foveated vision in the eye, for example, uh, the retina has this uh, foveated image, right? So wherever you're looking at is the sharpest image and then the rest is blurred. And then when you feed the brain with um, a sharp uh, image at the center surrounded by a blurred image, the neural dynamics quickly converge to process the sharp bit and then ignore the other bit. So 
it is that this morphology of the retina helps the brain to solve a complex computational problem very fast. And then this is seen in the knee joints, the fingers, uh, there are, you know, as I said, in the mountain goat hoof, uh, it, the computation happens in the physical body everywhere. Uh, so this is fascinating for me. Uh, and then if we see the, the physical body, not just as flesh and bones, but as computing resources, then uh, lots of opportunities open up. We can view the process of aging in a different way, for example. It may be that uh, during aging, it is not just the brain uh, you know, decaying, it is, it is maybe that the computing resources we had in the physical body decayed faster than the brain, and then the brain cannot really you know, replace those lost functions, right? So it, it, we have to explore these things, right? So if we claim that the brain has synaptic plasticity and then it can remodel anything, then it should be able to replace all these things that we lost, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, no, it cannot, right? So just when we age, for example, the cochlear, cochlear tubes, uh, the viscosity of the liquid in the tube changes, and then that alters the complete uh, bandwidth of frequency conversion. Uh, and then we lose to hear certain frequencies. Uh, the brain cannot replace that. So there are certain computational, uh, morphological computational functions in the in the body uh, that cannot be uh, accurately replaced by model-based uh, synaptic rearrangements in the brain. Uh, so this is important uh, to understand. Uh, I think, um, so if we expand our view of computation, through morphological computation, I think lots of design opportunities will come up, right? So then maybe able to maybe we can design new wearables of robots that can complement the lost um, computational roles of the body and things like that. So these are open questions. That's very interesting. I'm curious to ask you in that case when we speak about soft robotics. If I ask you, what do you think um, the most important or significant morphological parameter that can enhance the control design? Since we have this issue, if we have to enhance the traditional control techniques, so what do you mm -hmm. think maybe most significant morphological parameters? I think the the, the most important uh, thing is, as I said, let's say if I get back to um, the cochlea, for example, the you I said the tube does this computation, and then uh, the change of the, the viscosity of the liquid changes this whole map of computing, right? And then the reverse is also true, right? So if there's some brain function that can real time tune the viscosity uh, of the liquid, that means maybe we can, we can move the band, the, the frequency bandwidth, response bandwidth of the cochlea uh, to the kind of you know narrow frequency ranges we want to hear at this point and not, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't happen in the cochlea, but it happens in other parts of the body. For example, if you, if you uh, ride a bicycle on a bumpy terrain, the brain would ask the knee joint, like so you would come off the seat, you, you will just uh, you know, ride the bicycle uh, kind of a standing posture with the bent knees, and the brain would condition the impedance of the knee joint so that it works as a mechanical filter that um, absorbs a lot of vibrations that are not really important for the function of riding the bicycle. Mm -hmm. And then the brain would still ask the same knee joint to ride the bicycle too, right? So it is doing a concurrent, uh, there are two concurrent things at least happening. One is conditioning of the body and then the other, at the simultaneous, uh, you know, as is a parallel loop, um, there's force and motion control. So morphological computation, the beauty of morphological computation is this, where you can condition the computation function of the physical body, and at the same time using that to do movement and force control. So this way we can focus on the relevant uh, components in the state space at a given time uh, without considering the full state space of, uh, for example, in the riding, the brain doesn't need to know all the vibrations from the terrain. 
it just needs to know you know the speed of the bicycle or the angle of the bicycle right so it is it is just a condition in the body so that it can really focus on the relevant states in the state space and then the rest of the states uh, can be you know delegated to the body okay you take care of that right so i will just condition one parameter in the body for example the stiffness or the damping in the knee joint and that that can autonomously take care of other states to do with vibration and things like that that are not really relevant to the task of so using morphological computation we can do at least few things that is one is uh, make the computation real time mm-hmm. right uh, next uh, uh, to condition the body so that we can uh, focus uh, the brain can focus on a simplified world of relevant states in the state space right and then third use uh, exploit the full uh, potential of passive dynamics right so the brain is not really you know like in conventional control it is not sampling at a fixed sampling interval it samples when it is relevant when it is needed uh, like let's say take octopus so the octopus wants to catch a prey it just shoots the limb like a rope along a straight line it it just unrolls along a straight line which is the simplest form of uh, you know shooting right mm-hmm. uh, a soft limb and then if it if misses the target it doesn't go to do local corrections it just pulls it back and throws again uh, so and then it learns quickly right so you know within a couple of shoots it, it catches the prey mm-hmm. and then but when it when it uh, pulls it back it makes two rigid links uh, with a single joint to pull it back because pulling back dynamics can be very complex because you have to uh, keep the prey in your limb and then it simplifies the whole kinematics it doesn't work with the redundant uh, kinematics uh, with a hyper redundant limb it just converts it to a two link manipulator uh, and then focus on just one joint right uh, and then it it simplifies conditions the body to simplify the task so and and when it wants to throw Uh, the limb it just exploits passive dynamics and then samples one at the point of shooting and then the next sample is at the point of maximum stretch right and they, it doesn't think about the in between states it doesn't care about it right so it cares about when whether i took the target or not mm-hmm. so uh, you can use passive dynamics to do um, interventions when it is needed so real time nature of control uh, relevance of state space and reducing the states to the relevant states used by conditioning the body and then third using passive dynamics to simplify the control task at least these three things are um, open up these opportunities mm-hmm. um, when you use uh, a morphological computation framework uh, to control Mm-hmm. That's really excellent point. Thank for that. I'm curious to ask you in that case, since you highlighted many interesting points. Do you think about the material we have to select for sofa body? For example, if it's elastic or high elastic or viscoelastic material, which one? I'm asking this question because sometimes, as we know, non-neurotics bring opportunities. And I'm curious to ask you what kind of non-neurotics you have to keep or remove for your sofa robot. And of course, that depends on what kind of material. I don't know what you think about that. What kind of non-linear oh. you have to keep? I think uh, any material that that leaves the the damping nature uh, mm-hmm. dissipation. So we think our oh, dissipation is just losing energy, uh, but dissipation is needed uh, in in real world. The the every everywhere you go, any any joint you see. has a damping for a reason one i think the main reason is uh, stability right uh, and then you cannot slip forever there is there is a dissipation uh, and then uh, that helps the nonlinear dynamics to exhibit contraction regions right so like so used you state space you start from anywhere you as after some time you end up in a very kind of narrow funnel 
uh, of uh, of uh, state trajectories, right? So they, they try tend to converge towards a, a narrow region. We call it contraction. Uh, so you know people like Slotin and uh, um, MIT. So they 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 derive the 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 nonlinear theories of uh, contraction theory, which is slightly different from the Lyapunov stability theory. Uh, so I think you can use or condition soft robotic uh, material uh, to exhibit that kind of useful phenomena like contraction. Um, so I think what is most useful in that kind of things is uh, conditioning the viscosity, the, the damping of the material um, you know, while having elasticity. Uh, so this is a kind of a compromise between uh, conditioning uh, this elasticity, the spring nature of the material and the damping nature of the material, and then kind of going in the continuum uh, spectrum between these two is co-managing these two is really important because you cannot change the other, the other parameters. Mass, you cannot change. The inertia, you can change by changing the sh shape of the material. But what is more important might maybe a intrinsic level would be uh, compromising uh, the rel relative values of damping and stiffness. That's a great also. So I'm curious to ask you this question since you said, well, for example, we need the elastic behavior and viscous uh, uh, dissipating behavior. But when we come to the modeling, because we see the modeling techniques, for example, uh, uh, if we ha have to represent spring and dumper, this is idealistic model. And you said we have to come up with modeling that uh, capture the physics happening in the, in the material itself. And that's challenging. For example, you want to capture the the stress relaxation and how the time they could settle all these dynamics happening on uh, in viscoelastic material so when you do the modeling to which level you have to go do you think you have to still in um, gray area or you have to go to microscopic and get some features that could help in design recipe so that we we, we have a model described what happened in the material. That's something we're struggling. I don't know if you agree on that. Yeah. But... I mean, that is true. So uh, as I said, like, so if we are really interested in, uh, if, we, if we define where, what points in the, in the control that are really important for us, right? Uh, for example, in Octopus, for example, uh, what is important, right? So you are throwing and then then checking at the full stretch posture, right? Mm -hmm. So in between, you are not interested uh, controlling, okay? You you don't care where the limb goes, and you really care where the limb is at the end when it is stretched. So you can let the limb go and then check, uh, you know, maybe put a flag. Uh, okay, tell me when the arm is fully stretched, then I will check where it is, right? Mm -hmm. So. It is it is like a Poincaré section, so you have you have some strategic places where you would check, and then you have these Poincaré sections, and then you just check in the, at that plane, the hyperplane, right, and then your modeling can be so much simplified. So you don't really worry about the nonlinear dynamics in between. Mm -hmm. uh, so just focus on these sections that are strategic and important and then design your control action only at those sections, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and then use passive dynamics as much as possible in between. So uh, for example, let's say a passive dynamic walker, I mean, that's an extreme example. Um, uh, you just worry about uh, when the leg hits the ground, like, you know, what is the speed or the force that hits the, hits the ground? Like you don't really, worry about the swing phase of the of the leg mm -hmm. right you you just worry about oh even the full stance phase you don't you're not worried about that you just worry about what is the speed at which it hits the ground what is the collision force and then i'll check again next time when it hits the ground right mm -hmm. so just uh, plan these uh, hyperplanes in the state space um, where things are strategic and important 
and then design your control action there. And then you just check again when it crosses the next next hyperplane. Yeah, that's, right? yeah, that's so like this, this Poincare section yeah. idea. Distributed uh, control. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I don't know. Uh, that's question count again. Uh, do you think uh, if we speak about reproducibility for uh, highly linear material, you you say you have to focus in su su such sections that could be interesting, but what if this uh, material overall behavior is dynamically changing uh, over time? Maybe temperature or fatigue or fracture. Yeah. In that case, how do you think this this is the same structure applied to have distributed control for such interesting point in dynamic uh, soft robotic? Yeah, again, again, like I mean, it can change over time, right? So if you check, if you check the full uh, state space at the point at these sections, right? Yeah. And then you can, you can, you can, you don't have to worry too much about the details of how it changed in between these sections. So you check, just check at the section. Okay, so now uh, this parameter has changed. Now I, I I cannot use the old dynamics equations. So you just update the parameter. So then you have time, more time to prepare yourself, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so rather than checking it uh, at very high frequency samples, uh, which is very inefficient. Uh, so I think uh, like, you know, maybe relaxing the sampling strategy uh, to this kind of Poincaré sections or uh, any kind of strategic sections in the state space um, will help to track these changes in parameters and the states um, in a more efficient way and take action. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great point. So if I ask you uh, to which level the developed currents of robotics are intelligent. How you manifest intelligence in soft robotic? What could be sending actuation? What what is intelligence uh, in soft robotics? Yeah, I mean this. Uh, the whole notion of intelligence is really uh, illusion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is it is some a construct in your own mind. Uh, so when you see something, you think that is an intelligent thing. It is you thought it is right. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's 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 nothing in the in the soft robot that made it intelligent or dumb or anything. So, but there seems to be very important features that gives you this illusion of intelligence, the the how you construct intelligence. So, one dominant feature is the real time nature of the response, right? So, for example, if you have a Venus flytrap, and if the Venus flytrap uh, you, when you see a Venus flytrap, you you just wonder how real time it was, right? You know, it's so fast and quick and quick enough to catch the fly, right? Uh, it is not just real, real fast, but it is fast enough to respond to the fly. And then then you wonder questions like, okay, how did it know what kind of a fly it was, and then how did it know how to control it? So my childhood question of this sensitive plant, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so how did you know that I touched it? And how, how did you know how fast it should collapse? And how did you know my force and everything? So those questions come up. And then that gives you a illusion of the plant being intelligent or smart. Um, so one factor is the real-time nature of that response. If the response is very stereotyped, like you know, no matter how you touch it, it, it just collapses its own, in own way, its own time, then you don't think that it is intelligent, right? So it, 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 you get the feeling of being intelligent if it really responds to the situation. Uh, so and for different flies, maybe the Venus trap will respond in different ways, then you think it is intelligent. And then the other thing is that gives you this uh, feeling of being intelligent is uh, the efficiency of the movements. So if, if they are so elegant that it seems very efficient in that movement, in the, in the shortest path uh, with the shortest energy, less vibrations and, and the, 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 the appearance of efficiency, energy efficiency, uh, that gives you, oh, it is intelligent. And then the third thing I think is important is the smoothness of movements like so if if you when when you see some human uh, reaching to something we know that 
our velocity profile has a Gaussian, like a bell-shaped velocity profile. That template uh, helps us to, uh, you know, notice what is not human or what is artificial, right? So when a robot reaches something or, a, you know, a, a complete in, a, the infant uh, reaches something, you know that is an infant movement. It's not an adult movement. Uh, you know, there's a robotic movement. It is not a human movement, right? So these templates of movement velocity profiles also gives you a sense of uh, being intelligent about uh, something. Mm -hmm. So in my view, intelligence is, is a construct in your mind. Uh, and then that construction is driven by at least three important things. One is real time nature of the response and the very you know, responsive to the real situation, not uh, to a pre-programmed something. Uh, the efficiency of the movements. And the third thing is the smoothness of uh, these movements. That kind of matches uh, your, uh, your memories about um, a smoothness of natural things, right? Yeah. I'm asking if you have just a project and you just did a modeling or an analytical uh, modeling yeah. and you yeah. thought, oh, you will get this result. But when you did the empirical result, it, it show you something uh, maybe different and maybe it was interesting. You didn't expect that. Is there something different, completely different? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So the, the problem is like, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a fundamental flaw in our uh, normal scientific uh, methodology also, right? So we, um, the traditional way of scientific investigation is you observe something and then you think what it is, and that becomes your hypothesis. And then you do experiments to invalidate that hypothesis. And then the experiments, uh, if if uh, if your hypothesis stands, all these you know try, attempts to invalidate that, then we say, oh, that hypothesis is correct, right? Uh, so the downside of this is like you can do thousand experiments, and then the thousand one experiment can invalidate your hypothesis right mm -hmm. uh, so which is really flawed and then what really happens is he put an ego behind my hypothesis because the moment you have a hypothesis you call it my hypothesis and then it and then the moment it is my hypothesis you don't want it to be wrong right uh, and then you do really ex the experiments are planned to approve that hypothesis, not really to invalidate the hypothesis. So the, the, the scientific process is flawed. So uh, the, the, my, my recommended approach of doing uh, the, the scientific investigation is to remove the ego behind the question, right? So the, don't make hypotheses, make questions, right? So just ask questions like, is the, does that exist or not? But then it is not mine, right? Uh, it is not my hypothesis. Like you just want to know whether it exists or not. And then <clears throat> when you remove the my, uh, the ego behind the hypothesis, uh, then whatever the result is okay, right? So you just wanted to know uh, does that apple has seeds or not, right? So then you don't care whether it has seeds or not. You cut it open and then you see seeds. Oh yeah, there are seeds. Right, <clears throat> and then if you had the hypothesis that oh apples don't have seeds, uh, and then you won't like you're driven by you know this ego of proving that it is not it is yeah. they don't have seeds right then you will just ignore all your observations of apples with seeds and then you will find that one single apple without seeds and so oh, yeah my hypothesis is right mm -hmm. right so in in the laboratory we see so many observations. Uh, and then we tend to ignore it and we just just you know brush it around uh, because of this ego which is yeah. killing science uh, yeah. then every observation is true every everything that conflicts what you thought it should be is true data is always 100% telling you the truth uh, and then just just stop and you know look at it and maybe it is telling you something, you know, uh, really important. I, I would like to thank you for this very important point. And that's led me to the second question in this regard. How we can, 
How can we ensure a diversity of approaches get the exposure they deserve and prevent an overinvestment in a limited set of techniques? For example, academics tend to establish strong beliefs about other fields that come off often as arrogance and elitism and discouraging exploration of ideas out of the mainstream. And the basic question here, how we can in enable, how can we enable a more inclusive culture around competitive ideas? And I think that's also related to the soft robotics debate, the idea of having healthy debate so you, you have a healthy room to, to uh, manifest your um, ideas or thoughts about a certain techniques. So if you can tell us, as you are in, in, in academia, how you can enable more inclusive culture with your student or the community around competitive ideas? Yeah, I think uh, uh, it, it, it totally starts with uh, our, our kind of our goal, like you know, what are we trying to accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so are we trying to, you know, prove ourselves uh, to be right or wrong or somebody wrong and I'm right and this that is that is not like you know science you are putting labels your 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 labels onto nature right so things things in the nature that is that do you want to really understand what is out there then just get rid of your ego uh, and then you know the people can have different uh, different views and different ways of looking at it and if you really care about understanding what it is it helps you to have diverse ideas right uh, so let's say um i want to i want to understand what a candle flame is uh, and then i can have various uh, things about the candle flame i can say oh the wax has some yellow color uh, and then you know when you light it up that yellow color comes out of it uh, and it is really the wax uh, the yellow color hidden in the wax so I can do various crazy things. Like, so then if I listen to a group of people talking about the candle flame, uh, they may expose things that I didn't know. So you benefit from it, right? You don't benefit from proving who you are, you know, what you know is right. And then you benefit from expanding your knowledge. Uh, and if that is the important thing, then diversity of ideas is really important. It doesn't mean that you have to accept everything. You you can just start with the uh, the you know the policy of agreeing to disagree, uh, and then allow things to happen. And you know different people do different experimentation, different approaches to test things, and then just uh, look at it with the point of view of understanding or broadening your knowledge about what is out there than you know establishing what what you what you thought it is right so one i think barrier to that is like you know we have a publication track record right so let's say i have published um, i think more than 150 papers and then when things shake my ground it, it disturbs me right uh, so the the i think what we should do is it is okay i mean uh, like i saw in a, a, there was a Nobel Prize winner who came to my university when I was a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And then somebody from the audience uh, took a book he wrote about 20 years ago and then wrote and uh, read a paragraph, he said. And then uh, that completely contradicts with what he says now today. Mm -hmm. And then he said, you said this 20 years ago and then you say something different now. Uh, why is this, you know, kind of, well, I, I don't exactly remember how he kind of yeah. put that. It said, like, you're kind of blaming him. Right? So this, this scientist said, yes, it is 20 years ago. So, I mean, uh, the nature of science is uh, we keep discovering things and then we yeah. change our mind. So I think that is a true scientist. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, what you said maybe yesterday can be wrong and then you should be able to gladly accept that. Uh, I said it yesterday because yesterday's knowledge is yesterday's knowledge. Today, if I have a different knowledge, that means I have made progress, which is, which is great, right? Yeah. So uh, I think that, is, that attitude allows diversity to emerge. Yeah. And then in my lab, uh, 
very often PhD students disprove me, uh, uh, which is great. <laughs> you know, it is good for me. Yeah, uh, thank you for this uh, good answer. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I would like to ask uh, the question since you leading a group and you working with your collaborators. When you have a funding on grant for four or five years, how you ensure the project is going to be beneficial to the community or humanity as a whole? Do you have this kind of discussion? Bring the table. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that is really important. So, for example, right now this robo patient project. Uh, so we, uh, you know, one year ago we thought. Uh, some strategies we thought of ways of doing it uh, which is different now because we are talking to many people like so we we keep talking to experts in the medical field and then we uh, keep talking to um, uh, like medical educators uh, uh, trainers and then our our thoughts change our, our you know what we thought is right is no more right uh, and then if you really care about uh, making impact uh, it, it, it is the best is to talk to as many people as possible who are really doing, you know, in making impact, right? Talk to people who are really making impact than, you know, just talking to people, right? So the people who really matter are people who are really, uh, you know, doing some impact, right? So we, we carefully choose people who are passionate about teaching, who are passionate about uh, medical education, uh, who are not just famous, right? So we go by this criterion of um, the passion they have. So if, uh, if a professor is really, uh, you know, the students uh, like his teaching and then the students appreciate uh, the way, you know, the time he dedicates to teaching, um, and then we go and talk to them. Uh, and then there's something in them that we can learn from. Mm. Uh, so I think the project should be driven by uh, the, the, the motivation to make real impact uh, to a broader community because these are funded by taxpayers. Right? So we have to really keep in mind. So these research grants are coming from poor taxpayers so who could have invested that money in a different way. So if you keep that in mind and then you're driven by uh, the, the motivation to make impact and then lots of things open up yeah. uh, so, and people come and die. And then my feeling is like uh, when you are open to other people's views, people come and talk to you. Uh, they, they just feel free and, you know, to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, so you benefit from that. Yeah. Uh, I really benefit from uh, you know, killing my own ego and arrogance. Uh, so, is 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 I that is something I have learned um, yeah. in my career. Great. So, if I ask you, what is the most important quality you have gained while working in academia, and something you have to maintain in your journey? One quality you can't get rid of. Um, I think the biggest quality I have learned so far is. Uh, the, I think the the negative negativity which is uh, ego is our best enemy mm -hmm. um, um, you know just be open open to change like right? open to uh, the new information that can shake your ground uh, so information like we, our all our decisions are driven by information if we, if we cut off information, then we don't make progress. So uh, new evidence, new, uh, new um, you know, ways of looking at things and then new test protocols, uh, new instruments that can show us a different perspective of the phenomenon and be open to them, right? So I keep changing the way, the kind of sensors I'm using in my experiments mm -hmm. because some other sensors show me a different view of what it is, right? Um, and then I keep looking at what my colleagues are doing in in, uh, uh, in designing experiments. And then one thing I have learned so far is that simple experiments are the best experiments. Mm -hmm. So I keep telling my PhD students, um, 
you know how much i love uh, newton's uh, experimental uh, system i mean he he discovered f equals ma using a pulley and a mass right and a stopwatch or something uh, and then you can see this uh, universal equation in a rocket like you know they he didn't uh, go to make a rocket uh, to to prove the third law and he just had a simple you know pulley mass and a stopwatch so like simplify the experiment to the simplest form you can think of and then take enough time to do that uh, and then don't do complex experiments and then try to isolate phenomenon in the in the simplest form you can see it mm-hmm. and then do a very cool you know very very uh, controlled experiments and if you feel that uh, more than one thing changes in this experiment don't do that experiment yeah And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was a life changing for you? Okay, uh, I think my PhD advisor gave me a really nice um, advice: uh, just follow your passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's say you have a research question, and then uh, there are multiple ways to address that research question, um, and then. then when you look around there are so many let's say there's control right so there's a control problem or a modeling problem uh, like in my case like the modeling seven uh, degree of freedom robot uh, and then I, when i look around there were so many approaches like neural networks fuzzy logic and analytical approaches uh, and then i was like kind of split in this because I, i'm a very naive i'm a very beginner phd student is so kind of tempting to get on one of these bandwagons uh but my phd advisor said like you know choose your passion so where does when you when you think about something in one particular way does it ignite you ideas and you know gives you motivation and gives you a kind of sense of energy uh, to keep doing it and then just follow that because every individual is different your childhood experiences are different your memories are different mm-hmm. your background everything so given the background things you think to value is going to be different just just follow your passion uh, and then that is who you are and then you will make uh, more contributions just by following that and then but at the same time uh, listen to other people and then you know maybe your passion changes over time right yeah so uh, uh, while following your own passion be open to change uh, that is that is the biggest advice i was given and then i'm still benefiting from that thanks so much professor for this enjoyable and informative discussion thanks so much thank you very much <laughs>